This morning comes from the book of John, chapter 5, as we read verses 18 through 29. Now, last week, Jesus had a run-in with the Pharisees, and that conflict was started, in a sense, by Jesus' miracle that was done on the Sabbath. He healed the paralyzed man. The man stood, he walked, he carried his mat, and of course, the Pharisees vehemently disagreed that you should not be working on the Sabbath. And everyone knows that carrying a mat instead of wearing it on your back is, in fact, work. And so at this accusation, Jesus has basically been told, you have broken the Sabbath. And Jesus responded to them. And we looked at the substance of Jesus' response last week. But part of what he said to them was this. He said, my father is working until now. And I am working. And so in in response, we read this this morning that the Jews understood exactly what Jesus was saying with these words. He was saying he was equal to God in the way he responded. But this morning, Jesus has more to say. He's elucidating further. He's explaining more what he has just said. And he wants to correct a possible misunderstanding. You see, they are right that he is equal with God. But he wants to be very clear, he is not another God. He is the same God. And so uh, before I say any more, let's read the text and ask the Lord to shed more light for us this morning. Would you please stand this morning as we read from John chapter 5, verses 18 through 25, 29. Hear now the word of God. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment Because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this very morning. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we cannot know anything about you without you willingly pulling aside the curtain and showing us what you want us to see. 
And especially this morning, we are very much in the dark without the words of your son. And without your spirit, all we have, all we would have before us would be notions or ideas, but nothing to move our hearts. So would you show us your truth and would you cause us to believe it? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, as I I mentioned, that Jesus found himself in a very deep discussion with the Pharisees. And part of the discussion, at least last week, was sort of occupied with the question of the Sabbath. And what is the right way to use the Sabbath? And what is the wrong way to use the Sabbath? And that conversation naturally led into a discussion of the nature of Jesus. And especially this question, is Jesus really equal to God? And if so, what does that mean? Whatever the answer is, we're necessarily led actually into even deeper water than just the person of Christ. We're led into understanding the question of the Trinity. When it comes to the mystery of the Trinity, the uh, reformer Francis Turretin says that we are dealing with a topic which neither reason can comprehend nor example prove but which the authority of divine revelation alone proposes to be received by faith and adored with love. Let me translate that for you. We could not make this up. (laughs) That's the first part of what he's saying. We could not make this up. You couldn't come to the doctrine of the Trinity if you didn't have the Bible already teaching it to begin with. And he says we only believe it because the Bible says it, and we know we've been told it, so that we would worship. That's what, that's what Turretin is saying there. So we know that Jesus is fully God. I, I feel like we've elucidated that and, and spoken about that already. We saw that at the very beginning of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He is the Word who is God and who was with God in the beginning. But what does that mean though? What does it mean that the Son, that, that, that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. What do we mean by that phrase? It's a really deep question. And as a pastor, as I'm working on sermons, one of the things that always comes to my mind is, A, be theological, but don't be too theological, right? Uh, Follow the text very closely, but don't do it in a way that you sort of lose people. And so as I sort of always have these little rules that I try to follow as I'm working on sermons, I come to a passage like this today, and I get to the question of what does it mean that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, and I feel a strong temptation to dodge the question and just immediately move to something that is less tricky and maybe a little more immediately practical. I used to have a job, though, and one of the things that sort of makes me realize this is important for us to talk about is this. I had a job when I first moved to Jackson to go to seminary, and I was working in a furniture store. And every single one of my coworkers at this furniture store, they were nice people, they were good people, good coworkers, strong work ethic, but they were all one as Pentecostals. And if you don't know, the one as Pentecostals believe that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all one person. So they believe in one God, just as Orthodox Christians do, but they don't believe that God is three persons. They believe he's just one person, and he sort of masquerades as the different persons depending on the necessity of the situation. And so they think the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are just one person sort of 
doing what needs done in any given situation. Um, They use the illustration of water. They say, look, water comes in the form of liquid, it comes in the form of a gas, and it comes in the form of a solid if it's frozen. And so the, whole, and so the Trinity is like that. And for a lot of people, they hear that example, and that makes sense. Oh, that is tempting to believe that. Because it's reasonable, right? Well, we just saw Turretin say just a minute ago, neither reason can prove nor comprehend. And yet, here it is, they've got an illustration that works really well, and, and, it, and it's easy to comprehend, right? The idea that God is one person just sort of acting in different ways is very tempting indeed. Um, here's the problem with that. It is a heresy. It's an ancient Christian heresy called modalism. And it is not what the Bible teaches, and it's not what church history has embraced. It doesn't fit with the Nicene Creed, for example. And this is what I found, though. My oneness Pentecostal co-workers understood the Trinity, which they didn't believe in. They understood the Trinity. They understood better than many Christians that I knew and many Christians that I know. And it was because they had been taught what they believed, and especially they had been taught what they didn't believe. Now, if, if oneness Pentecostals can understand what they don't believe, surely we as Orthodox Christians, as confessional Christians, can strive with all our energy to do the same. So that's, that's the thing that, that keeps me from pulling back and saying, no, let's not get into this, is the reality that we need to know it because there are people out there who do know it and they deny it. And it's tempting to dodge it, though. It's complex. And I think a lot of pastors have the exact same thought, and instead of leaning into it and saying, you know, we need to talk about this, they actually do dodge the deeper question like this. And I think that's part of the reason why we now have a population of evangelicals in this nation who barely understand the faith at all. We have some catchphrases, we have some cliches, we have some things that keep us going, we have some boundary markers, phrases that we use that identify us as who we are, but if you asked an average evangelical out there, what do we believe about the Trinity, they would be very lost very quickly. And I think part of the reason is because pastors have been dodging this. They have said, I'm not going to go there. This is too, too difficult. Um, on top of all of this, I think I, I would just say that's one reason why we need to know it, because those who deny the faith know it. But I, there's another reason, and it's actually far more personal. Over the last... You might not believe this, but I've actually been preparing for this sermon for a couple of months because I knew this text was coming up. I began sort of studying on my own. And here's what I found by just spending an an inordinate amount of time thinking about the Trinity. I discovered tremendous spiritual profit over the last couple of months, meditating more deeply than I usually do even over the questions of the Trinity and especially over this teaching of Jesus as the Son. And I think that we should dare to understand what Jesus is really saying here. And that will take us into deeper water than maybe we sometimes go on Sunday mornings. Now, I also have one, have one more reason why I want to do this, and that's because I think this is Jesus' intention. I think Jesus is intentionally leading us into the deep end of the pool here. Because notice the text. Jesus is the one who leads us to that end, Right? Here he is with us. He wants us to know who he is. He wants us to know how he relates to the Father. 
And he does it in a systematic and logical way. This is the most clearest, most clearest. This is the clearest that Jesus gets about his relationship with the Father. And he does it in a way that lines up with the way we think. He wants us to think about him and he wants us to honor him. And so he says those two things, by the way, repeatedly in the text as well. Jesus' intention is for us to use all of our minds and engage our minds as well as our heart when we're thinking about Jesus. And so Jesus wants us to gaze at him and not with a superficial gaze, but with a deep understanding gaze. Here's my question. Will you give Jesus more than just a superficial gaze this morning? Will you do that? According to Martin Luther, the doctrine of the Trinity and what it means that Jesus is the only begotten son is not even comprehensible to angels. So there, I just told you we're going to talk about this. And then I just said, it's not comprehensible to angels. How's that for a setup? And then Luther says this, those who have tried to grasp it have broken their necks over it. So now that makes me go, okay, great. Just decided to talk about the Trinity. And now Luther is saying people have broken their necks over this question. That's a great way to lead off. Well, here's the question I have to ask as your pastor then, how do we keep from breaking our necks on this issue? I think of the Trinity as sort of like a mountain pass, and it's a very dangerous mountain pass, and it takes us up to high places. There are advantages to going to high places. There are advantages in going to big, difficult locations around the world. And yet at the same time, we also have to remember that there is a tremendous amount of danger there. When Aaron and I first got married, or no, we hadn't first gotten married yet. When we had been dating for a few months, we went to go and visit her family in Phoenix. Well, if you go from Kansas to Phoenix, you have to drive through the corner of Colorado. And we took a path that we would never take again and will never drive again. And it was through a place called Wolf Creek Pass. Now, I don't know how adventurous you all are if you know what Wolf Creek Pass is, but we took Wolf Creek Pass And the road that we went up, it turns out, was supposed to be blocked off. We later found this out from some somebody like in one of these little villages that we happened through. Um, So spoiler alert, we survived. Um, But we went up Wolf Creek Pass. And as we started going up, it started to snow. And as the snow started to fall, the road started to get thicker with snow. And eventually it became quite terrifying to us because we were on this mountain pass driving up the side of the mountain only to get to the other side and then drive down the other side of the mountain in a zigzag fashion. But if you looked out your window, not only was it nighttime, you could see treetops and there was no railing. And we drove this for, I think we drove up and down the mountain. It probably took us an hour, maybe an hour and a half, maybe even longer than that. And then even once we reached the other side and we got down the mountain, we got to a city and there was no one there. We got to a town, there was no one there. There was no way to get gas. Really, really isolated. The thing that made it so scary was there were no guardrails. If I really had to just summarize it, it would have been nice to have some guardrails up there. (laughs) When it comes to the Trinity, how do we keep ourselves from falling? How do we keep from hurting ourselves? I want to suggest this. The Bible is our path that we will take, and it also provides us the railing that we need. And as long as we stick with what is written, as long as we stay within those guardrails that God has given to us, there's no danger. There's no danger of going over and breaking our necks. You see, Luther's right. The Trinity is an issue 
that it's not necessarily for rookies, but it's also safe because we have the Bible to guide us. And so because of that, our best plan this morning is let's stick with the text. The worst errors in the history of the church happened because somebody wanted to go beyond the Bible. They wanted to wrap their minds around the nature of God and they wanted to be able to comprehend and understand it completely. Now, I think that's what happened with the oneness Pentecostals, incidentally. You know, it's easier to hear that God is one person than he is three persons because we've never met somebody who's three persons. We've met people who are one person. And so immediately there's an appeal to that. But here's what I would say. Speculation is the danger. I don't want to speculate this morning. When we get to a question that steps beyond the text, we should just stop speaking. And in that way, I hope that the Lord will keep us straight. And at the same time, I think you may be surprised just how much the Bible has to say on this issue, especially even just in this passage, which we're going to restrict ourselves to this morning. See, as, as Turretin said in that quote I shared at the very beginning, God's plan is for us to receive these things by faith and to adore them with love. And so my hope is not that we will leave this place smarter than when we came in. My hope is not for us to leave this place puffed up with knowledge, with giant heads as we lumber out of this place. And it is especially not for us to leave this place confused. That is not at all what I have in mind, at least. If anything, I want us to be humbled this morning. I hope we see our limitations. I hope we see how much we need God, and especially Christ, to tell us about himself. And the real goal of all of this, and God tells us this in Scripture, it isn't pride, it isn't knowledge for its own sake. The real goal is adoration. He tells us who he is because he wants us to adore. He wants doxology. He wants worship. So, so if we hear these things this morning and they are true and they are from the scripture, then we should be brought to worship. That is my hope. That is my goal. So three things happen that Jesus that will help us understand who Jesus is. Jesus denies something that they misunderstand. Jesus affirms something that they get right. And then finally, we see that who Jesus is matters. And so our three points are he denies, he affirms, and he matters. So let's look at each of these in turn. First, Jesus makes a denial. He denies. So remember the situation. Jesus has has made a statement. This statement troubled the Jews. He called God his father, and the text said they were upset because he was making himself equal with God. So that's the the trouble, that is the scenario we're in, that's the context here. Now, I think when we hear Jesus was making himself equal with God, if you are from the church, if you have a church background, if you have a Trinitarian background, then when you hear Jesus was making himself equal with God, you immediately hear it in a Trinitarian way. You hear it the way somebody who has been learning about God for a while understands He made himself equal with God. He's one of the persons of the Trinity. But I want you to understand this. If if you understand the Trinity, you know there are three persons. There's one divine essence. And I think that as we hear Jesus claiming that he is equal with God, we may hear it that way. We may hear it the way that Jesus intends it to be heard. But here's what I want you to understand. His listeners did not hear him saying it that way. When Jesus says that he is equal with God as his son, they do not understand. 
They do not understand. And notice what Jesus does here. He makes a serious and sharp denial. First, he denies that he's another God. He denies that he's another God. Now, that might seem funny. Why would you even need to do that? Of course, he's not another God. Christianity is rooted deeply in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is adamant that there is only one God, right? The Hebrew Shema, which the Jews repeated constantly, is very clear. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. It is absolutely baked into Christianity from the very beginning that there is only one God. Islam misunderstands Christianity. They believe that Christians are tritheists. They believe that Christians believe in three gods. And Jesus is explicitly refuting that kind of a misunderstanding here. How so? Well, see, first he shoots down this idea that there can be two beings who are God. He's at pains to tell them that he is not and could never be independent of the Father. Look how he does this. He says, The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. He's making an argument here. He's saying, instead of being another God, it was one of many. He says, he as the Son has activities that are coextensive with the Father. He only does what he sees the Father do. He only sees what he does the Father do. Think of the illustrations here just in the passage, right? In verse 17, the Father works on the Sabbath. Jesus works on the Sabbath, right? Verse 21, the Father raises the dead and gives them life. What happens? The Son raises the dead and gives them life. Verse 23, people are supposed to honor the Father. They're also supposed to honor the Son. So you see these things that the Son is supposed to receive are things that are true of the Father. What is Jesus doing? He's showing that there is a consistent dependence here. He's shooting down this idea that the Pharisees seem to be misunderstanding. He is not some separate deity from the Father. There is only one God, and Jesus is that one God. That's monotheism. And why does monotheism matter? Now, that might seem really outrageous to even need to ask the question, but why does it matter to us that there's one God? What's the harm in there being two or three gods? other than the fact that it completely makes us separated from Judaism. Well, one of the reasons why it's important is what I actually just said, the fact that that Christianity and Judaism are not separate plants, but Christianity is a branch growing out of Judaism. In fact, Christianity is the full flourishing of Judaism. The Old Testament is our book every step of the way. We are monotheists who believe there is only one God. The second thing that it means, and a second reason why monotheism, believing only in one God matters, is that our creator is one. He has one purpose in creating us. We are made by a single being for the purpose of living for him. You see, at the core of reality, at the core of our universe, is not a group of deities who have agreed to work together. Instead, at the core of the universe is a single being who made us for his glory. It means that the same God who made us is the same God who judges sin. And he's the same God who saves us from our sin. You see, there is a unity in the work of God always. In the gospel, what is God doing? He's saving us from his own wrath. He's saving us from himself. 
Jesus is not some separate being who comes in to sort of rescue us from the other scary being. You know, God is united in his purpose to save a people for himself with his own blood. So these things matter for us. If we get them wrong, it doesn't just change what we say in our creeds. It changes the very message of the gospel. It changes how we read the Bible. It changes how we understand reality itself and our place in it. Jesus is adamant. There is only one God. There are no gods in this universe. So that's what Jesus does. He vehemently denies that he is a God or that he is another God. He is quite simply God. Second, though, Jesus makes an affirmation. He denies, he denies that he is a separate deity, but he also affirms that he is not a God, but he is God himself. <coughs> and he does this when he calls himself the Son. And we may not make much of Son. After all, we, we think of Adam in the Garden of Eden. We think of him as created by God, and we think, well, he's the Son of God. Well, imagine this. Imagine this, a duck has a baby. What kind of absolutely adorable little baby is that creature going to be? It's going to be a duck, right? That duck is going to have another duck. And we know this in nature. We see this around us all the time. The son of a thing, the offspring of a thing is the same type as that thing. So when reproduction happens in nature, the offspring is of the same type as its parent, And so when Jesus says that he is the son of God, the Pharisees realize that Jesus is making a weighty statement about his own nature and his own deity. To be the son of God was to be of the same type as God. It was to be God himself. And then not only that, but throughout his ministry, he referred to himself by that title and used that name. The relationship between the father and the son is is more than just a relationship of of obedience or affinity for each other. Um, The relationship is one that's close. You might even say familial. It is also eternal. In John 17, Jesus lets us look inside of that relationship a little bit. And he prays that the father will glorify him with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So, You see when Jesus talks there that there is an eternal relationship between himself and the Father, and it is eternal. In other words, it stretches back before creation, before existence, and before time itself. You hear more about this relationship in John chapter 3. I didn't make much of this at the time when we were going through John chapter 3, but you know the verse very well in John 3.16. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And we just move past that phrase, only begotten son, begotten. Jesus uses this term to describe himself. He says that he is begotten. That's the verb that he uses, begot. In in theology, we use a term for this. It's a fancy term. We call it eternal generation. This is the Father's begetting of the Son from all eternity. So what do we mean when we're talking about eternal generation? Well, Christians have different ways of putting it, but this is the way I would put it. Eternal generation means this. There is only one God. God only has one essence. However, within the Godhead, the person of the Son is, 
is begotten, in other words, he proceeds from the Father, and is distinct from the Father from all eternity, while always having the same essence as the Father and never getting his essence from the Father. He gets his personhood from the Father. Now, we say this happens in eternity, and the reason it must be in eternity is because if it ever happened at a point in time, it would mean that the Son was not eternally the Son. It would mean that that the Son was created. So the begetting of the Son happened before all time, and it happened outside of time. There was not a moment when it happened. There never was a time when the Son was not. Now try to wrap your head around that. The Father eternally begets the Son, and yet there's never a moment in time when it happens. That's what we mean when we say that He's eternal. We know this about the Father, that His essence is self-existence. He doesn't get His essence from anyone else. And we know the same is true of the Son as well. His, his essence is self-existent. They share the same essence. There's nothing we can say of the Father's essence that we can't also say of the Son's essence. And yet they're distinct persons. And this is clear in Scripture, right? The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Son doesn't have His essence from the Father, but He does have His person from the Father. And so as far as His nature or His essence goes, He has no beginning. And yet mysteriously in eternity, the Father begot the person of the Son. What does that mean? Well, you can be thankful. We can't go deeper into that. (laughs) There are some theologians like Augustine and and Jonathan Edwards, and I really admire their attempts to explain these things, but their answers are speculative, in my opinion. And they go beyond the bounds of what I think the Bible says. So we don't entirely know how the Father eternally begot the Son, but we do know this, the Son tells us that the Father did. And so at this point, we just have to remember what Luther said. How do we keep from breaking our necks? We stick with the guardrails. What does the Bible tell us? It tells us that at the end of the day, we must affirm that the Son is begotten. The Bible tells us we must affirm that Jesus is God. The Bible tells us that we must affirm that he is of the same essence as the Father. And the Bible tells us we must affirm that there is only one God. But how was he begotten? What was the manner of the father begetting him? These are mysteries. These are mysteries. And they're above what we can know. The Bible simply doesn't reveal them for us. Um, I think one of the ways of thinking about this issue is sort of think of visiting someone's house. But imagine they don't let you go into the house. Instead, they let you look into the house from outside. They let you be a snoop, basically. And... Uh, They open the curtains to the living room. So you're standing outside, you're looking in the living room, and you see that couch. How interesting. What an interesting couch. You see a a poster on the wall. Maybe it's got a football player on it. Okay, this is somebody that likes football. Uh, You see a movie collection in the living room. Okay, this guy likes watching John Candy films. Um, Then you go around to the other side of the house. There's a bedroom. So you look and you see, oh, what a beautiful bed. What a a beautiful uh, sign on the wall. You you look at the decorations. And then as you go around the house, you look in all the rooms and they open the windows for you to look and you learn a great deal. But there are some things you can't see. There's a bathroom and the door is still closed. Uh, Maybe there's a stairway and it goes up into the upstairs. Well, you can't go into the upstairs All you know about this person is what they allow you to see. And so they open the rooms up and they let you see into the rooms. And you say, but I want to know what's upstairs. 
That's the Trinity. (laughs) There is an upstairs. There is something there and we don't get to see it and he doesn't allow us to. He doesn't let us in. He does let us peek. We can see, cur- we can see carpet on the stairs. We can see that there's, a, that there's something up at the top, but we can't tell what it is. That's sort of what God is like for us. He has revealed himself. He's opened the curtains. He's allowed us to see what he's like, but there are limits to what we're allowed to see. So what we need to do is learn this. We need to appreciate what he's told us, but we need to also be content with what he reveals. So what has Jesus done so far? He's denied that he's a God or that he's a different God from the Father in the first point. And now we've seen that he's also affirms that he is God himself. He is the Son. He is of the same nature as God. But finally, this morning, we see that not only does Jesus deny, not only does he affirm, but Jesus matters. Who Jesus is matters so much that he personally and intentionally went into painstaking detail about himself while talking to the Pharisees. See, Jesus wants us to know these things because there is more here than just theological games. This is not just Jesus playing at a philosopher for a while. This is God himself. And knowing him is what we were made for. It's what you were made for. You know, we will put all sorts of effort into understanding all sorts of things about the world around us. Uh, when I explain the political system of the United States to, to my daughter, it seems like I'm putting an awful lot of work into that. Or if we sit down to watch a sports game, which you guys know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a, a wizard when it comes to sports, but I know how football is played. And if I explain the game of football to my child, it takes me quite a long time. Um, And we're willing to put energy into understanding these things. My question to you and my challenge to you is, are you willing to put that energy into knowing God? Because that's what you were made for. We weren't made to understand football. We weren't made to understand uh, as, as fundamental to our people and our persons, the American political system. It's a good idea to understand those things, but we weren't made for that. We were made to know God. We were made to know these things. These are things Jesus says to us because they are fundamental to our existence. And so I just want to mention, mention a couple of theological applications and then close on a note of action here. From a doctrinal perspective, understanding the eternal generation of the Son helps us understand what it means that Jesus was the Son before he was born. So we're able to understand and make sense, at least fundamentally, out of a passage like John 3.16. He proceeds from the Father. He was begotten by the Father outside of time itself. Now, we may not understand what that means, but we at least have the beginnings of an answer. Jesus wants us to. He uses these words on purpose. Words do have meaning. Eternal generation helps us understand the obedience of the Son. The Son proceeds from the Father, but the Father does not proceed from the Son. The relationship of the Father and Son is of the Father sending and of the person of the Son going. The Father loves the Son, and he insists that everyone love and obey him. See, the relationship goes in one direction. It's a one-way relationship. The relationship of the Father and the Son helps us understand that many times in the Bible, when we see Christ as an incarnate man listening to the Father, and following his directions, doing what pleases him. 
Eternal generation shows us that Jesus is not a created being. He didn't come into existence in first century Palestine or ever. Instead, Micah 5.2 reminds us that his coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. This refutes serious errors that we still see today. We still see Arianism today, the belief that Jesus is a created being. We still see errors such as Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses. You've surely been visited by them at some point in the last year, probably, in your neighborhood. Um, He is very God of very God. He is not a lesser being or anyone less than God himself. He has a created body, but he is not a creature at all. The eternal generation of the Son teaches us that Jesus is not the same person as the Father. It protects us from that error as well. Now, many Christians have trouble with theology, and I understand. Let's face it, this morning's passage is all theology. There's no way to avoid it. It's all theology. Jesus is telling us what he is like and what the Father is like and what that means. But many Christians have trouble with it. And on the one hand, Christians might say, say this, well, this is too complex for me. Yet think about this. Jesus was a master at communicating what people needed to know and how much they needed to know, and he knew when to stop. He had tremendous discernment and restraint about what to say and what not to say, and yet he chose to tell us all of these things this morning. Now, on the other hand, so there's some Christians that say this is too difficult, this is too complex. But then on the other hand, some Christians might say, well, I might be able to understand this, but this isn't practical enough for me. Give me something I can use. But isn't there something to be said for Jesus' judgment on this? He was a master communicator. He was always careful about what he said. But Jesus, in his perfect wisdom, believed that it was important to teach us these things about himself. How he relates to the Father. He wants you to know. That's why he's telling you. He's telling you right now this morning. Are you willing to look at the Lord Jesus and say, this thing you told me isn't practical enough. Our God is a practical God. One of the things that Jesus rehearses over and over again when he's talking to the Pharisees is the usefulness of the knowledge of God. Jesus is so convinced that the knowledge of God is useful that he talks about God all the time. That's all he did was talk about God. He believed That if we know something about God, if we love and treasure that thing in our heart, then it's going to affect and change the life that we live and how we live it. And so if we fill our hearts and minds with truths like these about God, Jesus is convinced it will empower our spiritual growth. Do you want to be a heavenly minded Christian? Do you want to be a person who loves what God loves? Then seek to know him. And expend energy on it. Expend as much energy on knowing God as you expend on understanding sports or understanding politics or understanding the tax code or anything else. Even the things in life that are extremely boring and unimportant to you. There's nothing boring about God, by the way. When Jesus tells us who he is here, he's giving us something that is supposed to go deep down into our heart. So that we live differently and we love God especially. And he is teaching us what the world is like so that we will live differently in that world that he made. Now Jesus Jesus gives one more application here. 
And it has to do with the judgment. In verse 24, he says, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. I would just say this. You don't get more practical than this. Someday you will close your eyes in this life for the last time. That is practical. That is not an abstract, philosophical meandering of some philosopher. That is a real life fact that someday you will close your eyes for the last time in this life. And what Jesus says is whoever believes in him does not come to judgment. And he says it right after he gave us all this theology. You see, he wants you to grasp who he is. He wants you to understand who he is. He wants you to know who he is. He wants you to believe in him. And he wants you to know him well. But here's the truth. In the end, if this is just a man, none of this matters. If Jesus is just another created being, none of this matters. If Jesus is just another in a long line of prophets and good men, then it doesn't matter if you believe in him. But if he is right, if he is the son of God, if he is the God man who bore his people's sins on the tree, then you'd better believe that everything he says about himself matters immensely and eternally. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you have told us about your Son. You've revealed him to us in time and space and in the words of Scripture. We ask that you would help us to hear what you say, but also to understand what you say to the best of our ability. Help us to put equal or greater energy into knowing your Son than we put into sports or hobbies. Give us the kind of zeal that you want us to have and protect us from complacency. We ask you to do these things in the name of your beloved son. Amen.